These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. We finished with the Sumerian people, but the story of Mesopotamia continues onward. This show, however, is going to take a little pause. We'll return to the land between the rivers soon, but this week we'll be on the opposite side of the earth, in an environment as radically removed from the Sumerian context as possible. These are the legendary histories of the Chamorro people of the Marianas Islands, of Saipan, Tinian, Rhoda, and Guam. I have, through a variety of circumstances, come to live temporarily on the island of Saipan, a pleasant little tropical paradise out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's a U.S. territory and saw a good bit of action in World War II, but those aren't very old stories, so they won't get mentioned here. The island nowadays is full of Americans, Filipinos, Chinese, Japanese, and Koreans, and survives mostly on tourism and the military base in Guam. But before the colonial powers claimed this island, it was populated by the Chamorro people, who still maintain their old language and a few old customs, though of course quite a lot has been lost after 500 years of not always pleasant colonial experiences. The Chamorros never had a written language before the Spanish, so what history and myth they do have was preserved in oral traditions, with all the problems that entails. Genetics, anthropology, and archaeology fill in a few details of the story, and it begins right about the same time period as the start of Sumerian civilization. Between 3000 and 1500 BCE, the island of Taiwan began to experience population pressure, and so, being hardy seafarers, they began to make expeditions to colonize the islands of Micronesia, reaching the Marianas Islands about 4000 years ago. But of course, this is not the story that is passed down through generations of Chamorros. For them, the story begins all the way at the beginning of everything, when there was nothing but a void surrounded by a sphere of stars eternally spinning. Inside that void were two siblings, the sister Fona and the brother Pontan. No use asking where they came from, they'd just always been there. This is the way of myth. These two primordial people had tremendous power split between them, but they were mostly just content to sit with each other in the void and watch the celestial sphere spin about them. And commendably, unlike most myths that feature a primordial man and woman, there is no incest anywhere in this story, putting them morally well above biblical myth and even parts of Sumerian myth. Anyway, Things went on like this for an unknowable length of time, until one day Pontan called to his sister and informed her that his death was approaching. She was understandably upset, but Pontan explained that he wanted her to have his half of the powers of creation. So he handed them over, then lay weak and sick in her arms until he died. Fona was very sad, but she didn't want her brother to go unremembered, so she reverently and ritually tore up his body. This is less shocking than it would seem to us today. The museum in Saipan has many examples of fishing spears and other useful tools made from the bones of the dead. In an environment with very few resources, human bone was simply too valuable to bury, and tools made from the pieces of a dead ancestor would be imbued with their spirit, so whenever you went fishing, grandfather would come too and presumably help out. 
But Fona didn't just make a fishing spear from her brother's body. She ended up making the whole world. His belly became the land, and his breast became the sky. His eyes became the sun and moon, and his eyebrows became rainbows. I find this to be an interesting list, since this is what I have seen repeated in multiple versions of the story. Are these the body parts and features of the world that are most important to the Chamorro, or are they just the easiest to remember over generations of telling the story? Compare this to one of many other similar myths worldwide in which a person is cut up to become the raw materials of the earth, such as the Norse myth of cutting up the giant emir, or, as we'll see next episode, the cutting up of the Apsu god to become a giant temple. In the Chamorro legend, the body is given willingly and cut up reverentially, suggesting a far more giving communitarian culture than the Norse Vikings. Shocking, I know. But on the other hand, both are boat people, and both have similar creation myths. Maybe a coincidence, but I find that while myth alone is a valuable window into a culture, comparative myth is where you start to find very interesting questions, though not always ones that have satisfying answers. In any case, Fona creates the world from her brother's body, then lands at a particular location called Foha Rock on the island of Guam. I was actually there recently and will post my picture of the rock on the show notes today. She sat on the rocks of the world and realized that it was still desolate and she was crushed by loneliness. In her sadness, she began to cry and her tears filled all the oceans and rivers of the earth. But then she remembered that she has the full powers of creation. In fact, Chamorro society is matriarchal specifically because women have the creative power inherited from the first world mother, Fona. From this spot on earth, all life arose. Fona, in some versions, is said to have been the first queen of humanity and the Chamorro people, and in other versions, she is simply the venerable first ancestor, dying shortly after this great act of creation. People then built the first ships and sailed off from Guam to the people the whole world. But that part isn't very important in the myths of the Chamorro themselves. They were certainly aware of other places, definitely other Micronesian islands, and possibly also the Philippines from occasional trade, but they were also quite isolated, and it was relatively rare for a person to leave another island. Their own islands had enough to survive on, and were big enough for a decent population, so there seems to have been little cause to worry much about other islands. The islands allowed quite a lot of fruits and roots to grow with minimal effort, and the Marianas represented the easternmost extent of Asian rice farming, though it seems to have been less extensive than in other Asian places. The coconut may have floated to the islands on its own, but all the other pre-colonial crops were brought over from other places in Micronesia, those great island trade routes that were made famous in the film Moana. And in fact, the physical way of life was not all that different here from anywhere else in the islands, again, as depicted in the film Moana. At least in very general terms, that is. It's still a Disney movie, not a history film. But for the Chamorros, these first people were not like you and I. They were giants, named the Tautaumona stronger, wiser, and more magical. And when they died, they would often become lost on their way to the underworld. Well, maybe not often, but 
like often enough for stories. You don't make stories about people who died peacefully in their sleep after a long and boring life. Anyway, if they were not properly guided and appeased, they could become vengeful or trickster spirits. But for the most part, they just lived as people, if much stronger people than normal. One tale from this early time explains how the island of Guam, also called Guahan, got its peculiar shape. Geologists will tell you that the island experienced two distinct periods of volcanism over the ages, first around the southern part of the island, then around the northern part of the island, and in fact that core of geological activity would move northwards over the millennia to create all the Marianas Islands. But oral tradition is not geology. This tale begins in the mists of long ago, on the island of Guam. There were many villages in Guam, and day-to-day -day life appears to have changed very little even over the course of thousands of years. There was a shift around 500 BCE, then again around 500 CE, known from archaeological changes in sediment patterns and pottery. But the general expectation was that you did more or less the same sort of things every day. And so imagine the surprise when fishermen from the village of Hagatna realized that the bay they were fishing on became a bit larger every day. And at the same time, on the opposite side of the island, in the village of Pago, the fishermen noticed that their coastline, too, was receding very slowly. At first, the fishermen gossiped among themselves, no one really wanting to be the first to say it for fear of being wrong. But eventually, they all agreed it was happening. Then it became gossip around the village, and from there it began to spread around the island. Eventually, the people of Agatna realized that the people of Pago were having the same problems as they were, and then people really started to become alarmed. The whole island put their heads together and realized, at this rate, the island of Guam would be split in two. But since no one knew what the cause was, even the extra-wise Tautamana were at a loss for what to do, and they all went back to their villages. But then, a fisherman from Pago was out extra early, and he spotted the biggest fish that he'd ever seen. The waters out here are very clear, and in good conditions you can see all the way to the bottom, even very deep. The fisherman brought his boat closer, hoping to catch the giant beast, but as he was about to throw his spear. He realized that the fish was eating the land itself. And this was the thing causing the island to be eaten away. This revelation caused him to hesitate, and in that brief moment, the fish realized it was being hunted and ran away, or swam away, rather. The fisherman ran back to his village to tell everyone, and quickly word spread throughout the island of this land-eating fish. The people furious, and every strong man on the island picked up weapons, and every boat was put out to sea. The men circled the islands, inspecting the reefs and the bays, and even going out into the deep ocean, diving into the place where the land falls away and there's just endless depths. We are, remember, very close to the Marianas Trench. But for all their searching, they returned home that evening empty-handed. But they didn't give up. They returned the next day, and the day after that, because on one hand, this was a crisis, and on the other hand, it was probably the most exciting thing that had happened on the island in generations. And so for weeks, the men of Guam searched for the land-eating fish, never catching more than a glimpse before it swam away. Meanwhile, 
The most beautiful women of the upper caste bathed each day in a spring right by Agatna Bay. They would frolic naked and wash their hair with lemon peels to smell nice. It was agreed by all the men to be the sexiest place on Guam. And note here that we already have indications that this story either changed over time or, in fact, is not as ancient as it claims to be, since lemons don't appear to have been present on the island until after colonization. But likely the attractive young maidens were using some other pleasant-smelling fruit or flower, since the islands have plenty of options in that regard. In any case, one day a maiden had walked across the island to see all the excitement in Pago Bay when she noticed lemon peels in the water, or whatever it was they were using at the time as perfume. The young woman realized that the fish must have eaten a tunnel under the island from Agatna to Pago, and so instead of telling the hunting party, she instead shared it as gossip with the sexy bathing circle. All the young women thought this was great, since it meant that the fish was hiding somewhere near their bathing spring. So they wove a net from their own hair, and being Tautamona, their hair had magic powers, so the net was magically strong. They then proceeded to sing and stand about seductively. Then, after a bit of all this, the fish swam out of a hidden cave right next to the bathing pool. It seems the women were so attractive that the land-eating fish had been peeping on them in his spare time. But once the fish had shown itself, the women dropped their hairnet and held it in place. When the men came home that evening empty-handed again, the women showed off their catch and had the men haul it in for them, acting very smug the whole time. And why shouldn't they? For they had saved the island of Guam, though the bitten-off part never did grow back, and you can still see it in the shape of the island today. There are other just-so stories explaining various other natural phenomena, some of which are rather short and uninteresting, likely meant as nothing but good-faith explanations for various things in the world. But... One explaining mosquitoes is of particular interest because it shows us a fair bit about Chamorro cultural practices, and it shows us that even these people living out on the most isolated island for 4,000 years still think and feel basically the same as everywhere else. This is, of course, my favorite part of these oldest stories, their ability to show us that humans everywhere are basically the same. This one begins much like the last one, in the distant mists of the unknown past. The people of the islands lived in very insular communities. Haha, <laughs> pun intended. And so, to prevent incest and all of its attendant problems, it was very common for people to seek marriages from other tribes. One day, a man from Talafofo, down in the southern half of Guam, wanted to marry a woman from Tamaning, which happens to be the area near the main tourist town in modern times. Not that that's relevant, just a bonus detail. If you go to Guam, go visit Tamaning. It's quite nice. Anyway, he gets permission, and they live happily ever after down in the man's village. Well, not ever after, because one day, as always happens, Death comes to visit, and the young woman takes ill and dies quite suddenly. The man was understandably quite upset and was so depressed that he kept his wife's body by his side for days afterwards. All the people in the village told him that he needed to bury his wife, but he refused, weeping endlessly for days and days. 
Eventually, he built a raft from a dock dock tree and put his wife's body on it. Everyone was relieved that he was starting to see sense, except that here too he hesitated and couldn't bring himself to leave the raft. And so when the tide went out, it pulled the raft with both of them still on it. He still loved his wife so much that even though she stank of weak old corpse, he barely noticed this. One evening, around dusk, a Tautaumuna appeared before him. Now, this is what they call the most ancient of ancestors, but it is also the word for what we would basically call a ghost or spirit of the ancestors. That said, not all of them are friendly, and this one is sketchy as heck, whispering to the young man that there was a way to restore his wife back to life. The young man was beyond caution, however, and eagerly agreed to whatever the restless spirit required. The Tautamuna requested that the man make pin out of bamboo, which was easy enough to make. They would have had lots of bamboo on the boat just as tools and stuff, and soon enough handed it over to the spirit. The spirit used the pin to prick the young man's hand, and a drop of blood came out, falling on the dead wife's skin. Where it fell, the color of life restored to her, and slowly began to spread until her entire body regained its healthy complexion. Slowly, his wife sat up in the raft, as healthy as ever, and the man was overjoyed. They held each other for a while, but then the man insisted that they celebrate. All they had, however, was the fish the man had managed to catch while out on the raft, and for a proper party, you need fruit. So he swam back to shore to collect fruit, but when he returned, he saw his wife on the raft with another man. It was the returned form of the Tautaumana. The two of them let out the sails and sailed away from the island to be lovers at sea. The young man was furious, throwing his fruit and screaming loudly enough to be heard on Rhoda. He swore that he would murder his unfaithful wife and took to scanning the coastline daily. Eventually, the raft that had stolen away his love made landfall near the mouth of a river. The young man came upon his ex-wife while she was alone and murdered her with the bamboo pin that had brought her back to life. From the hole he had made in poking her with the little bamboo pin, all the blood flowed out of her into the river and out into the ocean. All that was left of her body was a single mosquito larva. Today, the mosquito still tries desperately to suck the blood of others, trying to get enough blood to return to being human again. But it's okay to swat them when they try to bite you, because mosquitoes are unfaithful. Surely, this story doesn't need too much explanation. Love and betrayal are, after all, pretty universal themes. A much more culturally specific character is Chief Taga. Now, Chief Taga is an interesting character because he appears to eat stories. Not literally, but if you take the most expansive version of the Taga legend, which I'm about to do now, he appears as some sort of Chamorro forest gump, appearing on all four islands at nearly every major point in history. That said, many of the legends appear to actually be the legends of other people, and indeed, some of them still have versions with other people's names on them. And so, what was the core of the Taga legend, and what was later add-ons, is rather hard to say. But then again, 
it is very likely that the tales got folded into greater Gilgamesh mythos, and we know that ancient peoples loved to take historical quotes and anecdotes from a variety of people and assign them to more famous individuals. This happened a lot to Socrates, and even in modern times it's starting to happen to Einstein. This synthesis is a universal storytelling phenomenon, and we're lucky enough here to have a variety of versions from different islands to compare against each other. Our story begins in the very old days, the time of Tatamana. The men were all nine-foot-tall giants who lived for a hundred years and had super strength, super wisdom, and magic powers. But of all these giants, the strongest was a chief on Guam named Masala. When his wife was pregnant, he received a prophecy that his son would one day surpass him and become chief himself. But Masala ignored this prophecy, and the boy was born, strong and healthy. His name was Taga. Then, one day, when Taga was three years old, he was playing on the beach and caught a coconut crab. He teased the crab for a while, but as boys do, he got distracted, and the crab scurried off into a hole under a coconut tree. Masala was nearby, so Tanga asked his father how he could get the crab back. Masala laughed and said, There's no way to get it now except to pull the tree out of the ground. Masala had said it as a joke, but young Tanga didn't realize that. He was only three, and sarcasm doesn't really exist for three-year-olds. And so with one hand, he pulled the full-sized coconut tree out of the ground, roots and all, and held it casually above his head. Masala's eyes bulged at this display. If his son was this strong at three years old, how much stronger would he be when full-grown? You see, a young boy at age 14 would leave the household of his parents and go off to live with the tribe of his mother. Masala knew that if the neighboring tribe had a chief as strong as this, then his own tribe would surely lose in the frequent clan wars that occupied most of the time of the tribes of Guam possibly even having to face his own son in battle. Seeing this threat, however, Masala grew into a murderous rage and chased his son, who fled as fast as he could. Tagger ran and ran until he reached the north part of the island, and with nowhere else to run, he jumped as hard as he could all the way to the next island over, the island of Rhoda. To this day, there are still giant human footprints in the rocks of both Rhoda and Guam, 50 miles apart from this massive leap. Anyway, the three-year-old Taga grew up in Rhoda, and he was fully grown. He began to challenge the chiefs of Rhoda to contests of strength. Soon enough, he had won all of them, and he was acknowledged as the strongest chief in Rhoda. He married a woman from the island and began to build a house. Most houses in the Marianas Islands were pretty simple affairs, but the region is famous for their high-class structures called Lata Houses. I will post some pictures online at oldeststories.net, but for now, imagine a 12-foot pillar of stone as wide as a fat tree trunk, and then imagine that they managed to put a huge round capstone on top of that rock with a minimal amount of tools. They then did it again six to twelve more times. They then built a wood and reed house on top of that. Imagine basically Stonehenge with a building on top. Pretty cool. 
Anyway, he started carving out these massive foundation stones in a quarry on Rhoda, but then got distracted with something, no one really knows what, and the stones are still there to this day. But I'll go ahead and say that this is where another Taga legend comes into play. You see, in 1521 CE, a ship unlike any other ship the Chamorros had ever seen appeared on the horizon. Presumably, Taga then rushed over to Guam to see what was up with this ship, but honestly, none of the chronology really makes sense here. It isn't about telling history in a linear sense like we do with modern history podcasts, but about telling them in the Chamorro way to explain history through a certain lens and teach certain stories. Anyway, the strange ship, bigger than any lot house ever, pulls up into a harbor in Guam. The chiefs of Guam had intended to block the harbor and keep the ship out with a giant boulder, but all the mighty warriors scoffed and had said this was work even a child could do, so they assigned it to a little four-year-old and a three-year-old. The four-year-old was, of course, able to move the mighty rock, these are the giant Tautaumona back then anyway, but he got distracted while moving it and played around and forgot his responsibility because he was just a child, and the ship was ultimately able to arrive. When it did, the Chamorros saw strange foreigners, but they also recognized the symptoms of advanced starvation from being out at sea way too long. This was Magellan's expedition around the world, and Guam was the first land they had seen since leaving Mexico. They were badly in need of supplies, and so when the Chamorros, who well understood how hard it could be to travel the open ocean, began to bring fruits and vegetables out to the anchored Spanish ship, they accepted the offered goods joyously. But of course, neither spoke the other language, and so Taga and the Chamorros waited patiently for the starving Spaniards to make their offer for what they would pay for the goods they were already eaten. This was, of course, very common practice since trade was not uncommon at all between the various Micronesian islands, and the languages were not always mutually intelligible. Since no offer was made, the Chamorros decided that they would simply walk around the Spanish ship and take things that they thought appropriate as payment. The Spanish throughout history were very happy to take other people's things, but not so happy when their own things were taken. And so it wasn't long before a Spanish sailor slapped one of the Chamorros, starting a fistfight on the deck of the ship. Seeing that his underfed men were likely to be overwhelmed in a straight fight with these healthy and numerous giants, Captain Magellan ordered the cannons be fired. The shock of cannon fire, more than anything else, frightened the Chamorros and they fled back to shore. That night, after the Chamorros had gone to bed following an inconclusive tribal meeting about what should be done, the Spanish snuck onto shore and burned the village in the middle of the night, killing seven Chamorros and wounding many others, destroying the village completely. They then retreated and set sail, pursued by angry Chamorro boats for miles. But eventually Magellan's ship outpaced the Chamorro ships, and the Chamorros were forced to abandon the chase. Magellan would come to call Guam the Island of Thieves in his record, 
and then managed to get himself murdered trying to pull the same nonsense over in the Philippines. Taga, and by mythological extension, the Chamorros as a whole, would learn to be on the lookout for conquistadors in the future. But more importantly, it was with the arrival of these strange foreigners that the magic of the island flees, and the Chamorro people become weak like normal humans. No longer will these Tautaumona be born, the loss of magic, the interbreeding, the disease, based on whose interpretation you accept, will shrink them down to their current mere mortal stature. Taga did not want to return home after this. He decided that Rhoda was too small for him, and so he took his family and abandoned his unfinished house and sailed to Tinian. There he fought with new chiefs and took over the island again. Once he becomes chief, he settles down permanently and builds the House of Taga, the ruins of which are still visible in Tinian. It is the biggest of the Lata houses, with 12 foundation stones each 15 foot high. Absolutely massive, and probably built by Taga himself single-handedly, as is the way with these stories. Then, in another story that has multiple versions, including ones with different characters, so likely a story subsumed by the Taga legend, there's a story of Taga's brother arriving in Tinian, having heard of the mighty chief's strength. Taga's brother wished to challenge Taga, but when he arrived on the island, Taga wanted to get a sense of his competitor first. Remember, he'd been separated from his family his entire life. So when Taga's brother landed and announced himself, Taga pretended to be a lowly farmer and promised to take the challenger to Taga soon. But first, he said, let's enjoy a refreshing coconut. The brother agreed, and with a single chop, Taga hit the coconut tree and the coconut fell into his hand. Then with his two bare hands, he casually ripped the coconut in half and offered one half to his brother. The brother took one look at this coconut and realized that if a random farmer on Tinian can do that, how much stronger must the chief of the island be? The brother took back his challenge and walked back to his canoe. But now that Taga had intimidated the challenger, he definitely wanted to fight, because he knew he'd win. So he revealed himself, and then the brother couldn't back down after that. And so they agreed to a specific challenge. They would both get in the same canoe and paddle in opposite directions, and whichever way the boat went was the stronger man. Each agreed and paddled out to the ocean together. Then they started, facing back to back, and Taga and his challenger both began paddling so hard that tsunamis flooded both Tinian and Rhoda. They pushed so much water against each other that the water level fell in a bowl around them, and they were nearly on the seafloor. And finally, each was paddling so hard, but the boat couldn't move in either direction, that the boat split clean in half, launching each man in opposite directions. They decided to call it a draw, and each retreated to his respective island. There are more adventures attributed to Taga, like how during the actual historic wreck of the Nuestra Señora de la Concepción in 1621, a Spanish treasure galleon wrecked on its way from Acapulco to Manila, some legends say that Taga would lead the charge against the Spanish sailors in vengeance for the many Spanish evils that had already happened and would continue to happen in the future. While other legends say that he had a heart of charity and rescued the drowning sailors, bringing them to his house. 
In this version, after treating their wounds, he fell asleep and had a dream where he saw a woman and a baby. When he told this to the Spaniards, they told him that he had received a vision of Mary and Jesus, and Taga became the first Christian Chamorro. Of course, it's more likely that he was having post-traumatic flashbacks to his dead wife and child. The story of the loss of his family is typically the other bookend to the Taga's legend. At the peak of his life, his happy family consisted of him, his wife, his daughter, and his young son. But then one day, his young boy was playing with a crab when that crab climbed under a tree. The boy knew his father was strong and so demanded that Taga lift up the tree for him so he could play with the crab more. Taga refused since the tree was just about to bear fruit, no sense wasting good coconuts. But the small boy threw a tantrum and ripped the tree out of the ground single-handedly. When Taga saw this, he was stunned, for he knew that this boy would be a challenge to his authority and strength when he grew up. So when the boy went to sleep later that night, he smothered his own child to death. His daughter witnessed the murder and fled in fear into the jungle and starved to death. With both their children lost, Taga's wife died of sadness only days later. Taga himself would continue living after this, and in some tellings even had a few more adventures, but he was universally condemned and lived alone in shame for the rest of his life. Much has been lost thanks to the inherent issues of an oral culture and the ravages of colonization. At one point, around 1800, Spanish violence and Spanish diseases had reduced the number of Chamorro from a pre-colonial population of perhaps about 80,000 down to only 1,000. But the point of this episode is to think about the group of people who have been living here since the time of the Sumerians. It's easy to look at the surviving stories and records, of which there is basically nothing. I could maybe do a second episode, but honestly, I couldn't even fill this one without straying into the colonial period, and say that this is all there was to the Chamorro people. One among thousands of similar cultures that have dotted the planet, and like the thousands, they've left basically nothing for the outside world. The cultures like the Egyptians, Mesopotamians, Indians, and Chinese that built civilization in the Old World and left behind writings are very much exceptional points of light in a sea of darkness. But when you dig down into the Chamorro culture, you see that the history is dark for sure, but it clearly wasn't empty. These people were people just like any others in any other time or place on Earth. And if far more of their stories have perished through time than survive, then all it means is that they lacked the materials and technology to make them last. If we broaden our focus even more, how many hundreds of civilizations had intellectual cultures just as rich as the Sumerians, but didn't have the ability to preserve them through time? There's an entire world of lost Sumers, and even in Sumer, most of what was ever written has been lost to us. We write off the Gutians as barbarians, and we even forget completely the names of who knows what tribes might have roamed the really inaccessible places in millennia before civilization came to them. But we know that they were human, so we know they told stories. 
Most of the world may be lost to us, but next week we will return to the parts that did keep records 4,000 years ago. We will transition properly into the Akkadian period, this time called that because it is culturally Akkadian, not because we will see the rebirth of the city of Akkad. And with it we will see new gods, new culture, and new political actors. So join me next time as we begin this changing of the guard with a change in the very heavens, with the Enuma Elish and its war in heaven. Thank you for listening.